Principal Matters Podcast bonus episode. Hi, Principal Matters listeners. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I want to respond to some questions from listeners and also just some thoughts that I've had in my recent travels. So this is an encore episode, and I'm not even sure if I'm going to have time to do a companion blog post for this, but I'm actually recording as I drive. I safely queued up a podcast episode on my laptop, uh, which is not in front of me, uh, but I have a mic that I'm using as I safely drive with my hands on the wheel. I've been on the road a lot lately, and I've just been thinking, how can I be sharing some of the current thoughts that I've been having uh, with Principal Matters listeners? I hope you're having a great summer if you're listening to this at the time of its recording. I've been in Chicago. I was there last week for the National Principals Conference with NASSP, the National Association of Secondary School Principals. I'm a state executive director for Oklahoma and enjoyed taking a team of Oklahoma administrators. We celebrated the assistant principals of the year. Uh, Congratulations to Stephanie Williams from Oklahoma, who's at Norman Public Schools and uh, was celebrated as assistant principal of the year for our state. And we also connected with great educators from across the U.S. It was great to see other executive directors, but also great to see presenters and authors and principals uh, and practicing educators at that conference, too. So a big shout out to a couple of friends. Danny Bauer and Jethro Jones hosted a breakout session on how to podcast, and they invited me to participate in that. So thank you guys for letting me be a part of that breakout session. A big shout out to Jimmy Casas, who I got to sit with and listen to present. Uh, Jeff Zuhl, who's coming to Oklahoma in February of 2019. So uh, great to connect with with those guys and just so many other people that I'm, that I, I'm sure I've I'm afraid if I mention all of them, I'll leave somebody out. But uh, thank you to uh, NASSP for hosting a great conference and to all my friends who uh, I was able to connect with there, and especially my friends from Oklahoma who we got, were able to spend some time with as well. In, just a couple of days ago, I had an email from a principal in North Carolina who was asking me about how to prioritize more time in classrooms. And specifically, he was responding to some comments that I had made in my books about scheduling time in teachers' rooms in advance. And I want to try to respond to some of those questions in this conversation because there are a lot of practices as principals when it comes to uh, formal and informal times with teachers. And I think one of the biggest stresses or areas of anxiety that principals often have is not feeling like you spend enough time in classrooms. And I guarantee I don't think I've ever met a principal who feels like he or she spends enough time in classrooms because you are the person who's called upon to make sure that the most important parts of school are happening. And But when there's a crisis moment or there is a difficulty, um, you're the one who's called in to make sure that that is managed well. And then you're also the person who's held to the highest accountability with your school's performance and state reports and all the other meetings that you're required to attend on behalf of your school And so sometimes the thing that we want to do the most, which is be with students and observe and participate in learning with teachers, is uh, often relegated to the the margins of our day instead of being integrated into our day. And so I'm not sure if I can answer all those questions that I received um, adequately in this conversation, 
but I'm going to try. And on the front end, I want to say this, that if you're looking for a really good resource on how to spend, to optimize time with teachers in productive conversations about classroom learning, I would highly recommend Justin Bader's book, Now We're Talking, uh, which came out last year, published by Solution Tree, which I'm also a Solution Tree author. But Justin Bader and I have known each other for a long time online, but we've connected uh, through webinars and on the phone, and uh, we've really enjoyed building a, a professional relationship. And I was able to interview Justin last year. If you want to hear that interview, you can go back to my website at williamdparker.com and just search Justin in the show notes, and you'll find that episode. But in Justin's book, he talks very specifically and with a lot of practical suggestions about ways to spend time in classrooms. And here are some takeaways from my own practice, but also just from talking to other principals about their practices that I think would be helpful for those of you that are trying to figure out how to optimize time in classrooms. First of all, let's talk about formal times with teachers. Every state, or most states, have specific guidelines for the minimum amounts of time that principals should spend with teachers. And I'm not sure what your state's guidelines are, but in Oklahoma, we have specific guidelines for career teachers and new teachers. And for new teachers in particular, you're required to spend at least two formal observation times with them per semester, followed by meetings that allow you to review the areas that you observed using an evaluation model. Uh, In Oklahoma, we have a couple of options, but the evaluation model that I used mostly was the Tulsa evaluation model, or the TLE, the Tulsa Learning and Education model. And it covers 20 domains of, of learning that are happening within the common practices of teaching. And so the tool becomes a place to record your observations, but it's the conversations that I think are the most important part of a formal observation. And so let me just say this about formal observations. When I talk about scheduling time into your calendar before the school year begins, I'm typically talking about making sure that every one of those formal observations, you've set down a year in advance and you've scheduled out which weeks you're going to be in which classrooms so that those teachers know in advance when to expect you, but you also know in advance who you're prioritizing week by week. And that doesn't mean that you don't have times for informal visits. And I'll talk about that next. But for formal visits, I think it's just important that you block those times out ahead of time so that teachers know. And I I never block out the specific day. I block out within this week range, you can expect me to be in your classroom. And then prior to that week, usually the week before, I'm sending them an email asking them to give me some suggestions on best times in the upcoming week when to be with them so that I can gauge what practices, what lessons they're teaching, if they're doing labs, if they're doing assessments, and I can choose based on my openings when I can jump in. So that way the teacher and I know in advance that they can expect me somewhere within that week, but I also have some flexibility so that I'm not disappointing them if I have to choose between two or three options. They just, they've already known that, that that's their week. But I'm going to do that, you know, four times a year for my new teachers. I'm going to do that um, once a semester for my career teachers. And when I do go into those classrooms for those formal observations, my goal was to spend an entire class period. Now, in a secondary setting, that meant that I might have an hour to spend with one teacher. And so I try to get there at the beginning. I try to stay for the whole class period and I try to stay till the very end so that I can do a full observation of the beginning, the middle and the end of class. And just some practices that I try to embed 
in those, uh, if this is helpful to you, is number one, uh, pay attention. I tried to be mindful of the moment that I was in before I pulled out a rubric. And so I think it's important when you walk into a classroom for a formal observation that you're there as a participant in the learning. Um, you obviously are only getting a snapshot of everything that's been going on prior to your being there and what will be happening after you walk out. And, and oh, can you hear that? <laughs> because I'm driving, you're going to hear my cues for turning, etc. So because you are in a formal uh, observation, obviously you're going to be using a rubric, but that doesn't mean that the rubric drives everything that you understand about that teacher or that classroom. You have to be in that classroom at other times. And I'll talk about that when I talk about informal visits. Before a formal visit, typically I start off a visit by first just observing, which means I'm going to look around. I'm going to look into the faces of kids. I'm going to look around the room. I'm going to look for cues as to how that teacher has already indicated on her board or his board or on a smart board what the goals are for that day. I'm going to be looking for, for clues in practices of, of how engaged are students and do they understand the routines already of that, of that classroom? Do they seem to um, comfortably step into those routines? Are students able to self-guide themselves because the procedures are well-defined? Are students understanding the lessons that are being taught? Is the teacher allowing them engagement and, and providing opportunities for feedback? And then my favorite part, and, and I do usually after I've been able to observe for a while and just kind of take in work, the, the setting, I pull out my rubric so that I'm able to take notes on the different domains that I want to observe among teachers. And if you want to see an example of the domains that we use in Oklahoma, I did include a copy of that rubric in my book, Messaging Matters. And uh, you can either check out the book or if you want to just email me at will at williamdparker.com, I can send you a link to that rubric. But observations should not simply be just going through a checklist. It needs to be observing what's happening, looking at the learning from the eyes of the student, but also from the eyes of the teacher. And then as an outside observer, trying to filter some objectivity in terms of you know what's going well and what may need to be addressed if there's some things that need to be addressed in an upcoming conversation. I try to take notes within my observation instrument of the things that I would want to talk about when we have a follow-up or maybe questions that I just don't know the answers to and so I'm going to ask those within that observation rubric as well. And so throughout that class period I'm observing, I'm using my rubric, but then I'm also going to get out of my desk and I'm going to talk to kids. I'm going to ask them some questions without distracting the learning. I'm just going to talk to a few kids and say, hey, tell me what you learned today. Give me an idea of where you guys are and what, what have you been doing in here long term. And I want to hear some feedback from them. And if it's a particularly engaging lesson where they're maybe up or working in groups, then I want to let them explain to me the lesson. Hey, tell me, can you re-explain to me what you're learning here? And it's a wonderful experience when the students themselves can reframe for you the lessons that in which they're engaging. So at the very end of that formal observation, and again, this is all assuming that you're not distracted by a call or an emergency and you're able to stay for a full period, which doesn't always happen in the lives of principals, but I'm giving you the ideal. At the end of that time, I usually like to sit down and share that summary by email with the teacher with a follow-up date that we're going to sit down and have a face-to-face follow-up. And so in that email, I'm giving them access to my observations, um, my rubric notes, and any questions that I had uh, at the end of that observation too. So the whole process is one that involves making sure there's conversation happening before I'm in the room, making sure that communication is is between the two of us so that teacher's not surprised, 
making sure that uh, the time that I spend in there is engaging, not just how watching a teacher and checking off a list, but just trying to understand the whole experience of what's happening in that classroom, engaging with students and the teacher, and then providing feedback. So in the follow-up meetings, and this is important because I made a huge mistake the first uh, year that I was using a lot of digital feedback. I thought the digital feedback could replace face-to-face conversation. And I had a couple of really good teachers reach out to me and say, uh, and just be honest and say, Will, you're dropping the ball in terms of face-to-face feedback. I can't just rely on this digital feedback. I want to have a conversation. And so it's really important that you don't just check off the list and then sign some papers together, but you give yourself an opportunity in that follow-up meeting to ask some probing questions. What do you think is working well for you right now in your classroom? Where do you want to see improvement? And then letting the, the rubric and the comments and the questions that you wrote down guide the rest of that conversation uh, because it needs to be a conversation, not simply just checking off a list and then you're, you're done with your, your observations. So those are my thoughts in terms of formal observations to respond to the questions that I received in that email. But on the other side of that is informal times. You, you can't simply be in classrooms during the times that you scheduled those formal observations or your students and teachers don't see you enough and you don't have the best context for evaluating teachers. You need to be in classrooms walking through your building every day. And so that's going to look different from place to place. So let me just share some best practices. When you start your day off, obviously you're going to try to be with students. And so in my case, I would try to be in the most populated area of my school, which was our commons area. Students were coming in and eating breakfast and gathering before the day began. But when that first bell rings, and, you know, sometimes you do have meetings or IEPs or a parent who's coming to see you. But ideally, get out of that commons area and walk through the hallways so that you're greeting teachers, you're seeing students in their classrooms, you're being able to observe that beginning of the school day. And then make sure that you're scheduling your walkthroughs throughout the day. And so a walkthrough doesn't have to be a long time in a classroom And it should really um, kind of mirror the times when kids are moving the most. And so, yes, there's sometimes where I'll step out into the building and try to get into every single classroom and peek in and see a teacher or walk through just to see what's going on or just to say hello or try to make some kind of uh, physical, uh, verbal contact with the teacher just so that we can see each other because in a large building, sometimes you miss each other for days if you don't do that. But also just at, during passing periods, just getting out of the office and heading out in the hallways and trying to walk around. And then when the bell rings and, and classes are beginning, you're already in the halls. So on your way back to your office, you're stopping in classrooms and peeking in just to see what's going on. And the more often you do that, then the less intimidating it is when teachers see you in their rooms. You know, one of the other questions that I had in the email was when you do make a classroom visit or if you do a walkthrough, what kinds of feedback should you give your teachers? And I'm just going to share something that Justin Bader told me when he wrote the book, Now We're Talking, which was a book focused specifically on best practices for evaluations and observations. And Justin did a lot of research. And here's what he told me. And you, if you've got research out there that, that contradicts this, then please let me know. But Justin said, Will, in all the research that I did, I never found one study that supported that feedback forms or feedback some kind of writing or some kind of written communication after a walkthrough had any validity in terms of teacher uh, improvement of performance. He said, we do it. It's like this, this myth that we've all embraced that we, if you do a walkthrough, you've got to somehow leave a note or you've got to somehow fill out a form or you've got to do something on a little digital form or something. And if you do that, that's great because I believe a tool is only as good as the person using it. So if you've got a tool that works for you, then that's awesome. Keep using it. But I don't think you need to feel pressured to use a tool because 
a lot of times walking through your building is simply just a matter of ex- extending good relationships. And one of the points that Justin made in, in his research and his uh, practice with uh, teacher observations and walkthroughs specifically is your teachers need to see you frequently so that they trust you, so that they have a relationship with you. And in our conversation, we used the analogy, both of us were reflecting back and forth. And I said, you know what? It would really be interesting if in our friendships and family relationships, can you imagine every time you ran into a friend or a family member, or maybe you stepped into the room of your child at home, that every time you ran into them, you had to follow it up with a written evaluation or some kind of feedback form. How, how, how horrible that would be for your relationship, how deflating that would be for the, the trust that you have with one another. And yet we, we try to do that in our professional relationships and we wonder why people stop trusting us or looking at us as colleagues. And so don't feel pressured that walking through your building and touching base with teachers or being classrooms means that you always have to provide correction. Uh, people don't always need to be corrected. And, and, it, and what's happening in their classrooms may not be perfect performance, and that's okay uh, because you don't perform perfectly either. And if there are glaring situations that need to be addressed, those crucial conversations are your responsibility. You're the principal. So obviously you need to address them. But in your average day-to-day uh, interactions with people, the more you can be accessible, uh, the more you can be present, and the more you can have just real uh, life conversations with people, the more they're going to trust you when you do need to provide them feedback. And so those are my takes on both the formal parts of evaluation, but also just the informal times that you spend throughout your building. So make sure that you're taking time to schedule in advance all of those formal observations that you're going to have so that you can prioritize your time to be in classrooms. But then throughout your day, embed walkthroughs so that you can be in classrooms more often than just for those formal observations. One of the practices that I enjoyed with my administrative team was just mutual accountability too. And that meant that we had permission to come step into one another's offices and say, hey, walk the building with me. Um, Because we knew that unless we encouraged each other towards more time in classrooms that it wasn't going to happen. So I think it's an important practice and it's okay to encourage each other as well. I'm going to switch gears now and just talk about some other things that have been on my mind recently. And, you know, I was able to watch some great presentations at the National Conference, and I heard some interesting exchanges, some debates over the state of American education, uh, some presentations on research uh, in terms of what how students learn best. And when I got back from the National Conference, I was having a conversation with a colleague And this is something I've not heard anybody talk about. And so I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to bring this up, but I'm just going to talk about it anyway, because I think uh, as Principal Matters listeners, you are people with whom I entrust uh, my thoughts. And I think as adult educators, we can have these conversations and sometimes agree and sometimes disagree. But I'm just, um, I've had this on my mind and it's a curiosity. I'm wondering if you've observed some of the same things. But, you know, over the last several years, I've observed a lot of educators who are stepping into opportunities to share ideas, to create content that we share with one another. And and I'm including myself in this because as a podcaster and as a blogger and as an author, um, I've spent the last five years really um, building platforms where I could share consistently with educators across the U.S. and in my own state. I've self-published a book. I've published a book traditionally through a, a solution to repress. And so in that experience, I've become very observant of uh, others who create content and deliver content. 
And one of the things that I've noticed in the national conferences that I'm attending, but also in the state conferences and in some of the private organizations that invite me in to, to speak, is there seems to be now a mixture of both research-based content that's being shared with educators and then practitioner-based content. And, and the way I'll discriminate between those two is that when you were receiving your master's degree in educational leadership, a lot of you, just like me, spent a lot of time studying uh, research, looking at theory uh, and researching specific studies to get ideas of what's best for uh, what research says are best practices for school leaders. But then when we stepped into the business, we suddenly were confronted with the reality, just like classroom teaching, the reality of teaching is often different than the theory. And the reality of of school leadership is often different than what you see in research. And so sometimes when you become a practitioner, then you begin to rely heavily on your fellow practitioners to just tell me what to do. Help me find a solution to this problem because, because that's the way real life is. And I've just had some interesting thoughts lately, and I just want to share them with you in the context of a national conversation. And forgive me if this conversation gets too um, in the weeds or if if I start rambling, but I'm not writing this down right now. I'm just talking as I drive, and I want to just include you in this conversation. So stay with me for just a moment. First, I want to talk about national politics, and then I want to step back into educational conversations. I don't think that it's surprising that there's so much confusion right now in our national politics when it when you think about how in the world an intelligent nation with access to information and education and access to libraries and free education and an educated populace i'll just say it that way could be so in such a difficult situation nationally when in our last presidential election we were faced with two options both of which most people I knew were unhappy with. So I'm not picking on one party, I'm picking on both. And, and so it's just, it's so discouraging to me that we live in a time when in our national politics, neither party seems to be able to present a narrative that's attractive, except to the most, often the most extreme positions within those parties. And it's just, when I sit down and I have one-on-one conversations with my friends or my colleagues or other educators, we, we find a lot of common ground in what we believe, our core values, what we believe are best for kids and communities, the best human behaviors, the best ways that we should treat one another, the ideals of the American experience, the importance of not just individual liberty, but also community support and equity. And so these are conversations that, that really shift them between parties and often across party lines. But those conversations aren't what get people elected. And those conversations require people to be discerning in their experience so that they can apply the best solutions to the problems happening in their schools. And I know I'm like really rambling right now, but let me see if I can make sense of this. This past week, um, Donald Trump meets with Vladimir Putin And the response to that meeting was shock and awe around the world that the president of the United States would stand in a public space and say that he had more confidence in the um, opinions of a political tyrant than in his own intelligence agencies. And at the time when I heard that news, at first I was in shock as well in, in thinking how in the world could our president say something like that. But then he's he said so many things that are shocking and unexpected that I stopped myself and I said, 
Let me ask a different question. How can we, as an educated American populace, be so foolish as to place people like this into office? And I'm not just picking on the Republicans. I'm picking on the Democrats, too. But we seem to be in a place in the American ability to think that we've lost our ability to be discerning. And I'm not saying I've got it all figured out either, but I just want to encourage us as educators to remember that it's okay to have healthy skepticism. It's okay to be committed to our core values, but it's also okay to remain true to what we believe is important. And as school leaders, I have never met a school leader yet, a good school leader, a great school leader, who would espouse the kind of behaviors that we see in our in our president, uh, or frankly, espouse the behavior we see in a lot of our politicians. We want students to display the kinds of behaviors and ideals that make them great citizens, which means service, which means giving to others, which means uh, curiosity, which means innovation and opportunity and all those things that we that we hold dear. And so now let me now that I've rambled on about politics, let me shift gears back to educators for just a moment, because I've, I've noticed that in the education narratives that we have, that sometimes we seem to gravitate one way or the other. Uh, we seem to gravitate either towards research that supports the assumptions that we already have about education, or we gravitate towards practitioners who reinforce the assumptions that we have about education. And I think that's natural. And so you may be listening to this podcast because you resonate with the things that I say about, about education. But I just want to, because of a conversation I had when I got back from the national conference with a colleague, we were just sharing some of the observations that we've had on on both of those issues, you know, because we hear people that are both really well-researched based and other people that are really strong in, practition, in, in practicing in their practice. But sometimes, sometimes either the research can be faulty or the practice may not be healthy. And so at the risk of, I don't want to pick on anybody or point anyone out, but I just want to say that as you are attending conferences, as you're, as you're reading books, as you're downloading podcasts, as you're uh, connecting with people on social media through Twitter or Voxer or, or Instagram, practice the same kinds of discernment in your educational growth as you are hopefully practicing in your political choices and in the other areas of your life too. And so I'm just saying all this because I, what I'm finding is a trend towards a lot of my own colleagues and myself included we can't just spend our time listening to the people with whom we agree. Uh, we also have to sometimes take time to read the people whom we don't agree with. And frankly, sometimes we need to take time to read uh, content that has nothing to do with our fields at all, whether that's business or history or fiction or nonfiction, art. And so I know I sound like a grandfather, but I just, um, I've just been thinking about those things and I really haven't had a chance to talk about it except with one other person. And I thought, huh, this is something that I've thought, but I've not really said lately. So I, I don't know if that made any sense, but I just want to encourage you to think about as you're, as you're learning, to make sure that you're taking time to practice the same kind of discernment that you want your students to uh, vet your sources. Look for research that backs up what people are saying, because even in my own practice, and I know when I look back at my own content over the last five years, a lot of times I, I share specifically the things that I've experienced. When I was writing my second book for Solution Tree, they really challenged me to also find research that supported what I believe and, and, and what I practice. And so it was a good reminder because I used to teach high school English of what I taught my students. And so I'm just saying that because those are some things I've been thinking about lately, the importance of balance in our practice and the importance of balance in our learning 
and the importance of making sure that what we believe in practice uh, is supported by valid research, just like what we should be believing and uh, and endorsing on on our political stages should be um, based in truth too. I know that in the world in which we live, sometimes it's hard to figure out like um, where to find truth and uh, and where to base fact. It takes a lot of work, um, but I would rather um, invest the time to discover what I think um, are the solid facts than to simply just uh, accept everything that I hear and, and be naive. So I don't know if that's helpful to you, but those are some thoughts that I've had recently on education. And then the last thing I want to do is just give some shout outs. Next week, I'm going to be in uh, Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and I'm going to be with the um, Nevada's Association of Technology and Career Educators. And I'm so excited to um, connect with career tech educators in that state who want to learn more about messaging. And so I'm so excited to share with them some of the practices that schools can use to better inspire, better motivate, and better communicate with their communities. Because in all the conversations that I'm hearing um, across the states, when I talk to people in public school settings, in charter school settings, in private school settings, there is there's still a lot of false assumptions about what's happening in our schools. And I think that those false assumptions are often because we aren't taking the time to communicate out from our own experience the wonderful and powerful learning experiences that are happening among our students and teachers. And so I don't know if you've listened to me before, I'm a broken record when it comes to the importance of your messaging and the importance of your communication, uh, but no one holds a more important platform for, for guiding your school's vision, celebrating your school's uh, achievements, and encouraging and fostering a, an environment of, of, of flourishing for your school than the principal. And I know that's a tall order, but it's one that, um, that we should welcome, and it's one that we should uh, grow in, and it's one that we should try to teach those on our team how to foster as well. Because if all of us together are um, celebrating and messaging and communicating about the great things that are happening in our schools as we practice and as we try things and as we risk and as we make mistakes but also have successes, then we're going to grow a school community around us that uh, rallies around us, that supports us, that has our backs um, even in difficult times and where people are proud to send their children. And that's so important because in this day of, of lots of conversations about school choice um, or lots of conversations about policies that affect school funding, people need to know that our schools are worth the investments. They're worth the policies. They're worth the, the public support. They're worth the fight uh, because our students deserve great places of learning. Well, that's it for this week. I hope that hodgepodge of conversations is in some way helpful to you. If you'd like other free resources like this podcast, you can check out my website at williamdparker.com. If you'd like to read my books, Principal Matters or Messaging Matters, you can find them there or at amazon.com. If you want to connect with me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at WilliamDP, at Instagram at William underscore D underscore Parker, or you can uh, connect with me just by shooting me an email at my email address, will at williamdparker.com. This is going to be so much fun to listen to later because I've obviously driving means I can't read as I talk or look at notes. So you, you got to hear it just straight from my brain to this microphone. So hope you're having a great summer. I'll talk to you soon. And thanks again for doing what matters. 